As we've mentioned, it's been quite a year, hasn't it? I got a letter from uh, an organization that wanted me to participate in a survey. And they said, it has been a year of perpetual uncertainty. And I thought, man, that really summarizes it well. Perpetual uncertainty. You think you've got something on the calendar, and then it comes off the calendar. It gets canceled. It gets this or it gets that. You think, you, you think you've got it, and then you, then you don't got it. Again and again and again and again. Perpetual uncertainty. Can we plan? It's really, really hard to plan this year. And that, I find, stressful. I bet you find it stressful too and, and exhausting. It's also, it's also been a year where, at least as far as my memory goes, and you may, you may, if you're older than me, you may remember a time, but I don't remember when we questioned authority as often. Like, authority on every level. So, presidential authority... CDC authority, police authority, superintendent authority. Like we have been, we question authority on every level. And whether or not you agree with that, whether or not you think it's right, you have to admit it costs you something to question authority, to, to be analyzing and thinking. And, and I should say pastoral authority too. Like like, we've had some pastors really make a mess of things publicly. It, it's, been, it's been a year of perpetual uncertainty, suspicion of authority, and, and really, really tension. Tension. Can I just say it? Can I just say what you're maybe thinking? Tension between maskers and not maskers? Can you, can you just... Admit with me that there's tension there. Right or wrong, there's tension. Tension between, I think, what's coming is vaxxers versus not vaxxers. Tension. Sometimes it's low-grade tension. Sometimes it's not low-grade tension. Sometimes we experience this in our own biological families, sometimes we experience this at work. Sometimes we experience this at church. Sometimes, I mean, it's, it's kind of everywhere. So, so there's been tension, and it just, it, it, you can just go through life mad because of the tension. There's, there's the constant questioning, and there's the, just the anxiety or the exhaustion that comes with not being able to take anything with certainty. And this is why I've, part of why I wanted to preach through 1 Samuel, because 1 Samuel is a book of transitions. It's a book where we meet God in a royal mess. And let me just tell you, the mess that we've been in would look like a utopia compared to the mess they were living in when 1 Samuel starts. When you look at the book of Judges, which is where the book of 1 Samuel starts, as it's a transition from Judges to Kings. When you look at the end of the book of Judges, that would be rated mature if it was a movie. 
Like there, there are narratives in the end of the book of Judges that you would not want your kids to read or you would not read to your kids. Like it is hard stuff to read and it leaves a bad taste in your mouth after you've read it. It's tough stuff to get through. That's where the book of 1 Samuel starts. It starts in the time of the judges because Samuel is the last judge. But that mess, that insipid mess that is the time of judges is not what bothers our main character in this narrative. It's not the constant uncertainty that she lives with. It's not the constant anarchy in the time of the judges that bothers her. It's not the it's not the tension that is outside that bothers her. What bothers her what bothers her the most is at home. It makes all that other stuff look awful small. Let's pray and then let's jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would stand in front of me while I stand in front of them. And Lord, I pray that you would speak over me while I speak to them. We are your kids. Pull us towards yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Rathium Zophim, the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, Hey, hey, does anything bother you yet? Well, the Bible endorses bigamy. Well, let's read it. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Pania. Almost, almost certainly, Hannah is the first wife. She is unable to bear children. And so... Elkanah marries a second wife who he hopes will be able to bear children. Kind of like when Abraham and Sarah were unable to bear children and Sarah encourages Abraham to take her handmaid Hagar as a wife so that they can bear children. Children were everything in that day. The name of the one was Hannah and the other Pania. And Pania had children, but Hannah had no children. You could read, Pania had worth. Pania was fulfilling her role. Pania had meaning. She had purpose. She, she had everything you could want in the ancient world. And Hannah had nothing. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paneah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Okay, there's two wives. What does Paneah have? That's right. That's right. She has his kids. What does Hannah have? 
Well, we'll see this in the next verse. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. One wife has his kids. The other wife has his love. And that comes out at table. It comes out and is something as normal as eating. It comes out in as something as routine as dinner. And so to Hannah, he gives a double portion and says, I love you, Hannah. And to Elkanah, he gives a mountain of food for all her sons and daughters. And Hannah is sitting here looking at her prime rib, thinking about how much she wishes she had a baby. It tastes like gravel. Because or though he loved her in spite of, though the Lord had closed her womb. Who closed her womb? You okay with that? Does that bother you a little bit? The Lord had closed her womb. Well, maybe it's a misprint. You know, we can't take that too seriously. Maybe, maybe that wasn't intended to be there. Let's keep reading. Maybe it will get better. And her rival. Okay, so the Bible is real that people did have two wives in the ancient world, but it is also very realistic that it went bad. It's not like it was a happy thing. They compromised on the ideal of one man and one woman. And... When they did that, they lived with the consequences, and these are the consequences. Just those three words kind of sum up what that house was like. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It's like... You've got his love, but I've got his kids, and that's better than his love, because it will last longer. And there's God, again, the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on. Now, that I, you know, I have this going, we're going to go real slow here, annoyingly slow, one word at a time. So it went on. What went on? Well, grievously irritating her provoking her, you know, like, like an animal in a cage and poking it with a stick, provoking her grievously and irritating her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. This grievous, horrible situation goes on and on and on. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Going to pray again, Hannah. Oh, that's worked so well the last couple times. Going to pray again, Hannah. I'm sure God will hear you this time, like he did last time. Going to pray again, Hannah. Good, good investment of time, Hannah. Keep doing that. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? You know, you got to give the dude credit. 
He's at least talking to her, like that's good. But does he really not know? I mean, he knows, because you see it in the, next, in the next phrase. Am I not more to you than ten sons? He loves her. He's trying. She wants a kid. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So they go up to Shiloh. They have a big feast. They have this big meal. They have a lot to drink. Sometimes people then would go into the sanctuary drunk and defile it. And it's Eli's job, probably, we think, sitting beside the, um, the doorpost there to keep the drunks out. That's one of his jobs is to defend the purity of the sanctuary of the Lord. So she goes in. She's deeply distressed. Have you noticed those words in italics? She's weeping. She's grievously provoked. She's afflicted. She's hurting. She's sad. She's not eating. Have you been following that? So she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. You know, first she says, look, I just need you to notice me. It feels like you don't even see me. I need you to see what I'm going through. And then I need you to remember me like you remember the children of Israel, like you remember the barren women of old, that you would remember me and not forget about me. And not forget about your servant, but will give your servant a son. Like, this is how I know that you'll answer my prayers, that you give me a son. Then, here's the deal. This is the if then. Then, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. I'm just offering you, as Melanie pointed out, as we sang, before we sang, Blessed Be Your Name, I'm offering to give you back what you give to me. The only thing I can give to you is what you will give to me. The only thing I have will come from your hand. And no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. And Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken Woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? All this all the men in her life are just so dialed in emotionally, aren't they? Just dialed in. Put away the wine from you. And Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have Drunk neither wine nor strong, strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. This might be the formula that you need for prayer. That the formula for prayer you need is to pour out your soul before the Lord. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Than that you pour out your soul before the Lord. 
Do you do that? Do you pour out your soul before the Lord? Or do you think that you need to get your stuff together before you start praying? Do you think that you gotta, like, I gotta deal with this stuff, and then I can go to church, and then I can pray, and then I can this, and then I can that? Is that what you think? But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking. Speaking to who? To God. She's been praying. I have been praying out of my great anxiety and vexation. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying this is a great place to start. A lot of times we think we, we shouldn't pray until we get calmed down. Or we shouldn't go to church Until we get calmed down, until we get a hold of stuff, until we get ourselves together, until we're done crying, until we're done grieving, then we'll go back to church, or then we'll pray, or then we'll worship. But Hannah knows that great anxiety and vexation is not an obstacle to prayer, but a path into prayer. A way towards God. So what I want you to have this morning is this clear understanding that your anxiety, the stuff that you're worried about, the stuff, the last things that you think about before you go to sleep at night, the first things that you start worrying about in the morning, that is not an obstacle to prayer. That is a path towards God. That is what you should be bringing into prayer. The vexation, the stuff that makes you mad, really mad, getting an ulcer mad. That is not something that should keep you from God. It is a path towards God. So don't think of anxiety and vexation as obstacles to prayer. Think of them as reasons to pray. A lot of times we think that the most spiritual people are the people who are absolutely calm what do you think of when you think of spirituality well you probably think of someone like meditating you know like this maybe with their legs crossed and they're going like this and and let me just tell you you've been watching too much star wars think of our lord in the garden of gethsemane was that calm was that calm or or was that just crying out to god pleading with god sweating drops of blood the stuff that you carry around the stuff that is heavy and hard that gives you great anxiety and vexation that is not obstacles to prayer it's not like you got to clear that stuff away so that you can pray it's that's the stuff you need to bring with you into the throne room and bring before your heavenly father who is listening in fact Throughout, especially the New Testament, how does it tell us to think about God when we pray? To think of him as our loving, heavenly father. Right. So, so, how do kids ask for stuff? Do they ask always in a serene, calm voice? Do they ask once and only once? Is that how kids ask for stuff? No. Thank you. 
No, they don't ask like that. This is your loving Heavenly Father. Come to Him and ask. Ask about the stuff that's bothering you the most. Ask about the stuff you stopped asking about. Ask about the stuff that you're afraid to ask about. Ask about the stuff that that you're worried about, that you're mad about. Ask about that stuff. So pray. When should you pray? You should pray out of your great anxiety and vexation. So Eli answers. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. It's like, why are you in here drinking? I'm not drinking! Like, I'm not a worthless woman. I'm like, and he's like, oh, go in peace. <laughs> Sorry. Does, does he promise her that she's going to have a baby? Looks to me like a blessing. Looks to me like, may God give you peace that you don't have. And, and may he answer your prayer, whatever it is. She didn't even tell him she wanted a baby. That we can see in the text. Go in peace and pray, and may the God, or, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. Hey, before she wasn't eating, remember? Remember that? She got her double portion, prime rib. She looks down there and sees Panina and her kids with their mountain of food and the chaos and all this stuff. And she's sitting here with her choice portion and it tastes like ashes. And now she goes back home and she eats. And her face is no longer sad. Tony Cartledge writes about this, and, and I can't say it better than this, so I've got to read this to you. Because I think this really helped me, helped me put this together and, and understand it. He writes that, While worshiping at the temple, Hannah came to an understanding with God. Hey, do you need to do that? Is there anything you need to come to an understanding with God about? Anything that is causing you a lot of anxiety and vexation that you need to come to an understanding with God about? Hannah came to an understanding with God. She would turn the whole ugly, messy situation over to him. And if God granted her a son, then she would give him back to God and be satisfied to visit him at his new home. And if God did not grant her prayer, she would accept this fact with the peace of knowing that she had done all she could. I think when she leaves the temple after her run-in with Eli, somehow after that encounter, at least, at least she feels heard. And so she can go home and she can eat and she can be at peace because at least, at least she was heard. At least she has made her request known to God and God can do whatever God's going to do. But she made her request known to God. And the peace of God is beginning to guard her heart. How long, how long should you pray? 
think we pray yeah, without ceasing. I think, I think you pray without ceasing. And, and when, when you have these things that are really burdensome, you pray as long as it takes. You pray year by year. You pray until you feel like you've come to an understanding with God. I don't think that's a five-minute deal most of the time. Most of the time, that, that takes a long time of labor in prayer. So they rose in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her just like she had prayed. Remember? She had prayed, remember me? And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. And she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. People argue about what Samuel's name means. And I think that is a stupid thing to argue about because we know what we should learn from Samuel and what we should learn from Samuel's birth is that God hears our prayers. That God hears answers prayers that is the point so i called his name samuel for i asked for him from the lord and the lord gave me what i was asking for and the man elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vows but hannah did not go up for she said to her husband as soon as the child is weaned i will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the lord and dwell there forever I'm not going to go up until I can repay my vow. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. And that is a key theme of the book, is that God does what he says he's going to do. And the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and the ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull. And they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. God answered my prayers. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is what I want you to know, okay? That your prayer is not merely sending out positive vibes into the universe. That your prayer is not just... You're not just praying to an impersonable, impersonal force somewhere out there that may or not hear you. You are praying to the Lord. You're praying to God. Now, here's the thing. The Lord had closed her womb. And that, that, that to me is really hard to, to wrestle with. But what helps, maybe what helps, maybe this will help you, maybe it won't, helps me a little bit, is... God knew that his purposes included 
Samuel growing up in the temple. And if Samuel had been born in the normal way, he would not have grown up in the temple. But the Lord knew that Hannah had to come to an understanding with him where Hannah would give him back to the Lord. And so he would grow up in the temple. And so Hannah's pain was part of the Lord's purpose. As the Lord was working all things together for good. And so the book is named after this boy for whom she had prayed. You are praying to the Lord. You are praying to your loving Heavenly Father who hears and who knows what you need. So, when should we pray? We should pray when we're angry and vexed. We should pray when we're afraid and sad. We should pray without ceasing. We should not see our obstacles as, or our our pain and our frustration as obstacles to prayer, but we should see them a path into prayer. I want you to notice that Hannah comes to what would be church then and is badly misunderstood by the guy in charge. And yet, somehow, God redeems this encounter for his good purposes. I just want you to take courage from that. When should you pray? You should pray when you're angry and mad and vulnerable. And you probably, you probably should have someone praying with you. When should you pray? Well, when you're angry and vexed, how long should you pray? You should pray as long as it takes. Remember the Apostle Paul? He has this thorn in his side, and he's walking around, and it hurts, and it's hard. He has this, we don't know, he calls it a messenger from Satan. Could be a person. Could be a demon. Whatever it is, he's like, this is slowing me down. It's making me weak. And I can't do ministry with this thing in my side. So God, please take it away. Please take it away. He says he prays this three times. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You want to look it up later. And what does God say to him? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul comes to an understanding that his strength, the Lord's strength, is made perfect in my weakness. How long should you pray? You should pray until you come to an understanding with God. Why should you pray? You should pray because you have a loving Heavenly Father who is listening. Peter schooled in the Old Testament, would have known this narrative extremely well. And it almost seems like this, what he writes and 
1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 could be applied directly to this. He writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, as Hannah comes before God and says, this is, this is what I've got. You've got to help me with this. So at the proper time, he may exalt you. This, Hannah's prayer was answered. Casting all your anxieties on him. Hey, anxieties are heavy. They're heavy. It's hard to carry around a list of anxieties. Anxieties can also be malignant. Anxieties can get easily infected. And sometimes we carry them and we carry them and we carry them and we carry them because we think we've got to get ourselves cleaned up before we go to God. And Peter tells us, just like Hannah's example tells us, that that is exactly wrong. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We want to be people that pray. That pray all the time. That pray when it's good and that pray when it's hard. We want to be people that bring our anxieties and vexations to God. We want to be people that bring the stuff that we don't trust ourselves with to God. We want to be people that bring our anxieties and our cares to God and leave them with Him. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you meet us in the trouble of life and that you have a purpose for our pain. And Lord, though we don't understand it, we can't see it, we trust you. And so we come to you in prayer. Pull us towards yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.